I'm John Perry, and this is Selected Pros. Welcome to Selected Pros. I just had a great interview with David Leo Rice. He's the author of Angel House, A Room in Dodge City, and the soon-to-be-released Room in Dodge City Volume 2, The the Blute Branson Era. Phenomenal read, both of them. I'm just going to read you the back of A Room in Dodge City because I think it sets the stage better than I could. A Room in Dodge City follows a nameless drifter into an American heart of darkness. In this nightmarish version of the historic Dodge City, mythic beasts crawl out of the woodwork, bizarre rituals are enacted, and death is never the end. Equal parts humor and horror show, David Leo Rice's novel combines the mundaneness of modern life, motels, strip malls, temp jobs, with something stranger, darker, and more eternal. Told through linked vignettes that read like metaphoric fairy tales gone wrong, Dodge City consumes the reader just as it slowly consumes the drifter, leaving all to wonder whether any of us can truly escape this world or our own. I was consumed. And, you know, these were great books. David's a great friend of mine. I met him when I enrolled in a writing workshop through Gotham Writers, and uh, we were all in awe of his skill and his technique and his wide breadth of knowledge, and uh, I've been pestering him ever since. So without further ado, an interview with David Leo Rice. Dodge City 2 today, and I have to say I was... uh, (laughs) I was quite floored. I mean, I, I before I give it a go at maybe trying to describe what what uh, Dodge City Two is about, I kind of want to set the stage with this Dodge City trilogy, mm-hmm. and to the extent that it's possible, define this kind of hallucinated realm of Dodge City, where our drifter, the narrator in Dodge City, is drifting to and through and out of. Yeah, or or like imagines he may one day drift out of, although, yeah. uh, although he'll, he'll have to see. Um, and even comes to doubt whether he really drifted in or if this is the only place there is. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I mean, it's a kind of carnivorous town. I think, you know, it's this place that can like incorporate an infinite amount of external influence without changing exactly. You know, something about the nature of Dodge City is like it, it's almost a black hole. It can take in anything and yet it still remains this very remote location. So, you know, with the first Dodge City, uh, much is made of, of the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, the desert, of course, reappears. I remember, you know, in Angel House, much is made of the Inland Sea. There's uh-huh. always sort of these vast expanses in which all-consuming entities, they almost inhabit these places and create them in their own image. I would like, like Professor Squimbop. Here, here we have Blut Branson. Is it blood mm-hmm. or Blute? Blue, it's just blood in German. Right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this is something, you know, we can talk about Faulkner more if we want, but it's something I really learned from Faulkner is that, you know, there's something really exciting about this idea of like imagining that the Old Testament is like ongoing in America. You know, it's not that it's like this finished historical thing that's being interpreted, but rather, you know, which is maybe a more European idea, but rather in America, it's like this 
just ever unfinished business. You know, so it it is some land in which these like continually mythic events are always happening and are maybe happening like too fast to ever be made sense of. You know, I think that's like the beauty and the horror of America is like we feel as though we're perennially in this age of some kind of reckoning or some kind of revelation or, or even some kind of formation. Like we don't even know if we're at the beginning or the end of the world, but I think we never feel like we're in the middle of the world. You know, there's always this heightened sense of sort of mounting panic and revelation that is both exciting and terrifying that I wanted to capture in these towns, which are like a combination of, you know, really kind of run down contemporary rural locations coupled with this much more feverish, you know, mythic, biblical dream space. And, and we can talk more about this after, but in Dodge City 2, also coupled with movies, you know, and that like the history of the real Dodge City is that it's like the fundamental, you know, Western movie town. You know, it's a town like whose own history is already a kind of cinematic history, even before it was used as a set for movies, although it then was later on. What is the, what we, how, how would you describe maybe the initial revelation that plays out in Dodge City 1? You know, how it relates to film and Dodge City 2? Well, I think the, the initial revelation, you know, so Dodge City 1 is the classic, like, you know, someone comes to town or someone leaves town story. It's definitely a someone comes to town story. You know, and, and I think the revelation that this drifter character has to go through is beginning to suspect that the seemingly totally chaotic world of Dodge City is actually governed by some kind of secret logic, you know, or that it makes a kind of sense that is very foreign to him. And then I think the question, which is maybe just a, you know, a metaphysical question everyone faces is like, if you suspect there is some order behind the chaos, do you want to know what it is, even if it's something really horrifying? Or would you rather not know and just believe that it's chaos? You know, and, and I really don't know. I mean, that's a kind of open question. It's not, I'm not arguing either side, but, it, mm -hmm. but it's something that the, this drifter, you know, as he becomes increasingly incorporated into this really ritualistic and sort of cult-like society, you know, he gains a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of ability. You know, he meets some people and he sort of stops being like a complete stranger, which is a good thing in a way, but then also he loses some autonomy or he starts to fear that like the Dodge City mindset is now working through him too. You know, in a way, Dodge City is almost like a sentient entity. You know, it's like those science fiction stories of like a planet that turns out to be conscious or something like that, mm -hmm. like Solaris mm -hmm. or something along those lines. So the real like thematic shift, I think, between Dodge City 1 and Dodge City 2 is, you know, what do you do when you're no longer a stranger? You know, like you're no longer nobody, but what does it mean to become somebody? And like, what, mm -hmm. what do you even want out of that process? You know, mm -hmm. is that a, it's a good thing, it can be a good thing, but it's also can be a frightening thing that it's like, you know, it's a loss of youth story or it's a sense that like, you know, my exploratory phase is over and I have to like, you know, not necessarily put down roots, but I have to like cast my lot in some way. And it, Dodge City 2, which is about the film industry sort of involves him trying to become a filmmaker, but it, as almost a kind of secondhand dream. And it's not, not clear if this is like truly his dream or if it's some idea he inherited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, something I really liked about Dodge City 2 is he does have, have a sort of autonomy and there are a couple false starts where he takes stock of his, his life in, in the shadow of Blute Branson and 
decides that he wants to make a life in the movies. And on mm-hmm. multiple occasions, it seems that that quest is frustrated, you know, and without spoiling anything until maybe it isn't. But it does, uh-huh. se- it does seem that our drifter in Dodge City 2 has sort of taken action. Definitely. Yeah, and it's like he's, uh, you know, in Dodge City 1, he's like truly a drifter. I mean, he's adrift in the sense that he's, you know, at least believes that he could leave, even though he doesn't and maybe it was never going to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like he has freedom, but no power. You know, and in Dodge City 2, it's the opposite, that he's lost his freedom. He's admitted that he's not going to leave. So then the question is like, does any power come from that? Mm-hmm. You know, or it's like, in, you know, which I think is just a general life question it's like if you've given up the possibility that you might do anything does it become possible to do something yeah this sort of i'm here now and mm-hmm. and what am i going to do with with what i have you that's know, right um a lot of this sounds like it might be like an extremely abstract read but i think what you managed to do you're, you're dealing with complex ideas in a in a very simple language it's filled with humor which I kind of want to talk to you about that. I mean, if you don't mind me reading from Cloud City 2, the drifter checking into a hotel. And it's just a little digression, but it it speaks volumes, I think, about the tone and the way in which you approach your writing and why I enjoy it so much. Um, Do do you want to read the scene about the hotel? Um, No, go go for it. Okay. Well, so having resolved to to take my stand, I walk up the strip to Ultramax and buy a camcorder, a tripod, a set of wireless mics, and a memory stick. Then I come back to my room, take a shower, throw all my supplies in a backpack, and head out again. As I'm passing the front desk, I see the concierge arguing with a man who, I gather, attempted suicide by poison, but was resuscitated after 72 hours. I shouldn't be charged for that time, he shouts. (laughs) Not full price, anyway. I didn't think I'd ever be in this position. So how can you expect me to have saved for it? I didn't even bring my wallet. That was the, that was the only kindness I showed myself. (laughs) I just kind of wanted to highlight that like, yes, you're dealing with the film industry. Yes. You're dealing with like life and death topics and pretty like heavy themes that really forced me to think about a lot as I'm reading it, but it is not, you write in such a way that, uh, you know, I mean, I just think humor is, is a really high skill to have and it's, it's, it's hard to get there. But to be laughing out loud <laughs> while reading this, I mean, I just want to talk about, you know, I don't know what you can really say about that. I just want to let you know that it's, it's funny and maybe if you could discuss what role humor plays in your writing. You know, I think that like any perspective on human affairs or human existence like is bound to be at least partly funny. You know, I think, there, I don't know if it's Marx or somebody, but there's that phrase though, like, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy, right? Or tragedy plus perspective equals comedy. Um, which I think is basically true. That, that like when you're writing, you know, by necessity, just the very act of writing, it means you're outside of your life a little bit. You know, or like your life is going by while you're sitting there writing, but also it isn't going by, you know, also you're in a like meta relationship to the other affairs and like the other people and the other activities in your life. Um, so I think if you, put yourself in that perspective, which means if you have the desire to write, you have to do that. I think it's almost inevitable that you're going to look at things from some distance and that some of them will start to seem funny, you know, and it's probably a matter of personality, whether you like embrace that or 
try to run from it or try to you know push that away from you but it yeah i think it there's some way if you're just trying to be honest about like the strangeness and, and absurdity of any you know existence itself there's something humorous about it and there's just a yeah i mean i think i've always had this kind of dark sense of humor mm-hmm. and i think you know we can talk about this more later if you want also but um you know i think dodge city 2 is my first like explicitly jewish book or it's the book where i really talk about like like jewish heritage in a way and i think that kind of like gallows humor is like a very you know a part of ongoing jewish culture of you know having a lot of death and and horror through the ages and yet also having this kind of dark but robust sense of humor is you know is it's a coping mechanism but it's also a kind of philosophical stance you know and to say that i mean sometimes humor can be dismissive you know of saying you know i'm going to joke about this because i don't take it seriously but I think on a deeper level, it's the opposite that humor is saying, you know, I do take this so seriously that like all I can do is laugh. Like there is no solution. There's no, there's nothing else you can do. You know, it's like, you know, just, it doesn't even have to be any specific history, but just death itself. You can say, you know, I can't prevent it. I can meet it with resistance or I can meet it with a kind of humor. I mean, that's the only choice you have. Mm-hmm. Brings to mind uh, the drifter thinking about Jewishness and mm-hmm. realizing that perhaps he doesn't have anywhere that he can call his, or he doesn't have quite an origin story. He's not from anywhere. You know, that he, part of that is is described through the drifting. The second part of that being, of course, the, and I want to talk about Cronenberg too, because he plays a, a large part in this book, but the splitting of Cronenberg and other, and Lynch uh, into uh, Gentile and non-Gentile versions of themselves uh-huh. that, that then inhabit characters within the story. I want to I want to know if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I think I'm part. You know, my story collection is called Drifter. That this character is a you know, I'm always interested in drifters. You know, as some uh, aspect of at least my understanding of my own like Jewish heritage, that it's like you're always yeah, you you never feel like you're from anywhere, and you're always kind of in some either like slightly fearful or slightly uh, analytical relationship to the place where you are, you know, which has produced a lot of great art. I and mean, it's probably not that surprising that a lot of like Jewish people turn to filmmaking or to writing or to math or to things, you know, as more abstract types of livelihoods, partly because they're mobile. You know, Jews historically haven't owned land, haven't been farmers, haven't been builders, et cetera. Um, at least outside of Israel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that Drifter realizes this and part of his like fixation on Blute Branson, at least in his own mind, is that Blute Branson to him represents kind of the opposite. You know, he represents like Wagner or something, you know, or some sort of like ultra, like, like you know, sort of Germanic figure who's like the colossal like essence of the town, who's like so rooted that, you know, who's so rooted in Dodge City that he might be Dodge City. You know, that Dodge City might almost be a figment of his imagination. You know, the way Wagner like did create like an actual town in Germany that was like just for his operas and like just, you know, there was like a holy shrine that people came to like hear Wagner, you know, which I think is just like, there are no Jewish examples of that. I mean, that splitting and doubling thing, partly it was, it was just I improbably enough met someone once named Dr. Gentle, <laughs> which I just couldn't believe. And I was like, this, I have to put in something. So he became the Gentile Cronenberg. Yeah, I don't know where, where that came from exactly. I mean, I think I've always been interested in doubles. I've always been interested in, you know, questions of like, 
uh, who's the real version of someone, you know, sort of, sort of, um, you know, it could be between siblings, it could be between, you know, artists vying for recognition, but like some competition for identity, you know, which you see on like the macro level of the book in that the, uh, the narrator in some sense doesn't just want to be like Blute Branson, but he kind of wants to be Blute Branson. That's almost his like dark, almost a little shameful fantasy. You know, so I think that's another thing that I was really thinking about a lot in the book is it, you know, I've described it to people as like my anxiety of influence book, you know, but it's sort of the book about how do you absorb your influences without being absorbed by them? You know, how do you absorb them, but then move past them and sort of do your own thing and not be like forever in their shadow? Yeah, I, I definitely got the sense uh, of that, you know, reading this. And I wanted to ask about Cronenberg in, in specific, uh, specifically because in, in the near the beginning of the book, the town is burning an effigy uh -huh. uh, of Cronenberg. And I, I guess I would venture a guess that Cronenberg, you know, I, first of all, there's this heavy theme of like transfiguration, like physical, you know, the babies growing out of the earth and, and uh, like, like the changing of, of bodies almost arbitrarily. And, uh, and, you know, I guess that kind of plays in with like Cronenberg's body horror. But I, I want to know if, if Cronenberg was to Blut Branson as the drifter, as Blut is to the drifter. I mean, was, is Cronenberg, what's his impact on this book? Uh, what, you know, and, and what's his relationship with Blut or with the town? Yeah, he, I mean, Blut would probably not admit to having any influences, right? Like he would sort of claim that he, he just, you know, was like the first in his line, right? right. That he's, he's some like Titan who, you know, had no parents or something, but I mean, maybe Cronenberg was actually that for me more so than, than for the characters, you know, that he was someone who I, you know, who I still really admire, but, but I felt that he was also a, almost could say like a phase that I had to move beyond or, or that he was someone who was someone who I had to put, I had to file away in the right place, you know, and that he was someone kind of like in my, even in my teens, but like, especially in my twenties, who I was just, you know, really taken with and really, you know, felt this kind of a deep envy about and like that's like you know the ideal life would be to like be Cronenberg you know and, and I think you know now that I'm in my 30s I have more of a sense of like those influences are not forgotten or diminished but that they like have their place you know so I don't feel like directly under the spell of him or maybe even of anyone you know and, and that's also bittersweet you know it's like that saying that you know music is never intense for you as it is when you're 18 or you know 21 or something right that by the time you get past say like 25 you know you're never going to have like a new favorite band probably right so it's some, something like that feeling of just like the edge of how impressed you are with like things in the world gets just dulled a little bit yes it does <laughs> <laughs> which is sad but it's like you know it's another one of those things of like moving on uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess the effort to like be an artist in the world seems to be somehow balancing observation of just like, this is how it seems to be. And like, I, I didn't make it this way, but this seems to be the pattern of life and like proactive, like, but you know, I'm going to still try to like, you know, cast my hat in the ring somehow or like try, you know, it's like, I want to have some active involvement with the world, 
but also, you know, I'm not alone in feeling that the edge of these things gets taken off and there's nothing I could do person for myself to change it. Mm. You know, so it was sort of like putting that person, you know, the, the sort of influence of Cronenberg to rest. And another related aspect is that I had a writing mentor in, in New York who died around the time that I was sort of finishing up the first draft of this book. So, you know, and I dedicated it to him. And it also was that feeling that sort of, you know, I, I know that th this is like a solipsistic way to put it, but in my own mind, it felt as though he had like taken me as far as he could and then like left me there to, to go on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think it's a book, something about that in a way of like, how much can you get from uh, absorbing, you know, the grand, the, the idols. It's mm -hmm. almost like in a religious sense, it's like how much can you get out of dogma of just like worshiping in this sort of standard way versus how much do you then need to become a kind of mystic and just like do your own thing if you really want to, you know, be, be inspired or be, be transformed. Mm -hmm. And then back to, to what you're saying about transfiguration, I think that relates to this Faulknerian idea of, you know, the book of Genesis being open still, that it's like even human bodies are like never done being formed in this world. You know, and there's like this ongoing theme of like all these people who like may or may not be born, or like the question of like who's born and how do you get born, you know, is, is a big theme. And so I'm, you know, I just aesthetically, I'm interested in uh, human bodies being subject to like all sorts of transformation. You know, that's partly intellectual. I mean, there's another Cronenberg idea. It's partly intellectual of like, the word made flesh, you know, that's a very Cronenberg idea of, and a very Jewish idea that, that, you know, but, but this idea that like some idea becomes a physical thing. That's something that Cronenberg movies do maybe more interestingly than any other movie that I'm, you know, have, have probably learned from him and, and I'm so interested in. And then also this thing of like, uh, bodies fighting for their own integrity of like, how do you stand up as like, you know, your own being rather than part of just this like mass that's constantly being like burned and boiled down and like rebuilt into something else. Throughout Dutch City too, also that the, I guess I'll say the quote unquote residents of the town or the city, which by the way, <laughs> it's called Dodge City. Everyone refers to it as a town. <laughs> I'll have to have you elaborate on that as well. I think it's, a, I think it's funny. It works very well, yeah, but um, yeah. yeah, so it, it about what you're so I, I guess you know not to be too too bleak or whatever but it does seem that there is like kind of a heavy theme of suicide throughout the novel um it's discussed often but it's not you know i guess there is like this pervasive like platonic idea of the body being a, a vessel or something because I, I mean i i can't quite find it in the book but i remember a couple instances of people basically willy-nilly, oh, well, maybe I'll kill myself and just give it, give it another go. And, uh, you know, I mean, you treat it lightly, but it is this sort of like, I guess, Buddhist kind of like dismissal of the body for, you know, the uh, eternal return is, is mentioned. I mean, it does seem like you spend a lot of your time, um, a lot of the, the energy in this book, thinking about that in-between state. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think maybe all of Dodge City is that in-between space. You know, it is a kind of bardo or limbo or purgatory. You know, it's some place where these like souls have ended up and they're not quite home. Like it's not quite their destination, but they might never move on. Maybe that's why I like drifters, you know, that they're kind of lost souls or people who are 
you know, are there, are, are alive, but aren't quite, like there's nowhere to put them exactly. You know, they just like belong in motion, or at least that's the story they tell themselves. You know, and, and I think I've always, you know, another aesthetic that I have always tried to subscribe to is the idea of seediness. You know, and I like things that are seedy in the sense that they always feel as though they have unused potential. You know, like there's something slightly creepy about them or kind of like degenerate in their like sexual vibe or there's, you know, or potentially violent, you know, like sort of bus stations in the middle of the night or something like that. But then there's also this feeling of possibility. You know, if you think of how like artists often move into like neighborhoods that are considered seedy or something like that, that there's this chance that something new could come. You know, it's like why I always have um, characters living in motels and kind of, you know, maybe this comes from noir also, but people yeah. just b- biding their time. But but I, I like that idea that... The Chelsea Motel, as you call it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, right. yeah. I like that idea about, about things having potential. You know, we're, we're here in Brooklyn where everything's pristine, uh, but there is something extremely hopeful about the abandoned structures and not only their history, but like, you know, what might replace them. And, and uh, when I read your books, I think of abandoned lots and, and the- theaters that have long since been left and are falling apart. And it's this, it's this particularly, as we move into Halloween, it's a particularly uh, spooky vibe that I think you capture very well. Great, thank you. Yeah, and the sort of, I, I don't, I don't want to say post-COVID, but like be, post the like first waves of COVID, uh, can render places newly seedy again. I mean, if it's true that tons of people will move out and tons of things will close, like it, you know, it's sad, obviously, but it also, uh, you know, empty stores are literally openings for something to come, you know, I mean, the, like, you know, Brooklyn itself used to be seedy, right? And then became really fancy and it right. can go through that cycle again in a different way, you know? Right. Yeah. So another thing we touched on earlier that I want to to bring up again is, Faulkner and uh, Yaknapataufa. Did I say that correctly? Yaknapataufa. Yeah, I've, I've never heard it said, but that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, something like that, but I think I'm close. But, you know, um, having read Dodge City 1, Dodge City 2, Angel House, um, you very subtly incorporate a strand of the same universe throughout all your works, I think. I mean, you've got, the, the thing that, that I noticed was the recurrence of giant Chinese, which is a restaurant, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a uh, a takeout Chinese restaurant that plays an important role in Angel House, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm 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 always sort of interested in. I mean, I think Tarantino is somebody who, in a subtle way, also creates his own universe. Where um, I think in Django, you see a wanted poster of a few of the characters in Inglorious Bastards, and it's never in your face, but it's something worth exploring. And it seems like you're you're doing you know, similar subtle things. So I want to confirm, first of all, that that Dodge City 1, Dodge City 2, what's the town in Angel House that Squimbop dreams up? I mean, does it have a name or is it just- mm, It's just the town because it's, it's always the only one. Okay, all right. So, so first, yes, I want to confirm that there is some sort of strand, some uh, thread that runs through all of these these novels and just kind of not discuss world building, but, but uh, you know how you came to the decision to to do that if if i'm correct that you did do that and and you know what it's been like trying to write everything into a, into the same universe yeah i think you're definitely correct i mean I, I definitely think of them as unified you know as a geographical space you know and, and i think i mean that's like a medieval idea of 
like memory palaces or, you know, this idea of trying to conceive of your thoughts within architecture, you know, building a, in that case, a palace or a town or a, even a set of towns. So like building some space where your imagination is housed, you know, is, is a way of just like organizing your thoughts that, that I've always found appealing. Um, yeah. And, and I think like certainly the Dodge City books, Angel House, I'm working on a new book now that is a little more concrete in terms of being in the real world, but has a lot of, re- is like uh, on the other side of the portal from these places, if that makes sense. So like some characters are coming through between them. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I, I always like that idea of Faulkner. I mean, I think it's cool when literary fiction incorporates certain strategies from fantasy. You know, that I don't know if Faulkner thought he was doing that, but it, that seems like what he ended up doing, right? It's like, or, or Garcia Marquez. I mean, I guess things that have a magical realist quality. It's like there's the quality of the language and the ideas is what we'd call literary, but the nature of the world that's built, you know, has these very fantasy ideas of, you know, series of books or trilogies or, yeah, like crossovers and Easter eggs and things like that. And it just makes it fun for me to write too, to think about, you know, where would these different characters end up or what is the, it's not quite geographical, but sort of astral relationship between these different towns. And I think there's also something very American about it that it, you know, America, seems like has always been a place of these like insanely over ambitious dreamers like projecting their own fantasies onto this like vast landscape like a literal screen you know in a way it's not surprising that we're like the movie country you know given that like there are these vast open spaces that almost literally you know were the backdrop for these often like murderous fantasies of you know take take whatever you know religion or or like cult you want to you want to imagine, but like, it seems like a place that, you know, it's like, doesn't put any checks on people's like visions of what life could be like, you know, which leads to like incredible innovation and incredible like brutality and, and horror, you know, but both of those aspects uh, fascinate me that it's a place of, of like somehow both too real and not real enough. You know, it's like things really happen that like boggle the mind that they're real. Right. And yet it's also this place of like constant, like half fantasy or like no one knowing what's real, mm-hmm. which obviously now has reached a, a new fever pitch. But I think that's like exists throughout our history is the sense of like many divergent realities barely pieced together, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something I like, I like that collage like aspect, certainly for Dodge City of like all these different pieces like fit in Dodge City, but like don't really fit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a ba- it's like a magician bag where they seem to be putting in more things than could possibly fit in that bag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is this sort of, I guess, in terms of the American, like, you know, manifest destiny, but also basically turning turning the landscape into whatever individual had whatever vision for that landscape. To the extent that the characters in Dodge City aren't just figments or astral projections, it does seem like you know, there's this idea the entire time that anyone who's in Dodge City is, is, a, is an extra or an actor in Blute's films. So they, they're, they are simply a tool. And you can think about historically in the United States, how we've treated indigenous people or the environment or what have you. But it's, it's, it's also like, well, welcome to my movie <laughs> is, is kind of the, the vibe that I get from Blute and from oil men <laughs> or you know what have you so i don't know if i'm correct in that but it does seem like blue is sort of like subjugating 
definitely his people uh oh yeah for for sure yeah and he's maybe i mean we don't really have much of his psychology but he's sort of telling himself that he just created them yeah he sort of sidesteps the ethical question by just not acknowledging the reality which obviously is also what happens in in all sorts of you know real real world violence right and and not to spoil anything but whenever it is that our drifter wants to exercise some of his agency and and quote unquote begin his life in movies blute quashes it he shows up and he he takes the script literally he's like this is my script now and he casts his own cast and right so so there is this and and it yeah i mean the anxiety of influence is definitely a big thing but also i think just being you know i i felt the the weight of our drifter being kind of objectified and used as a tool. Definitely, yeah. And even his narrative of this like hapless but sort of ambitious, you know, outsider trying to get a foothold is itself, you know, can be like the life can be bled out of it by by like that can just be another like Blue Branson narrative. You know, Blue Branson has like tried to get a kind of monopoly on like story types because he's like de facto declared that all stories are like his origin story <laughs> yeah yeah you and know, it, so it's almost like a um uh, some kind of like mental block whereby like every sentence you start ends the same way or something like that and and as somebody who knows nothing about like tv or movie writing in, in hollywood i've never been out to la i don't i don't know how the system works but from what i've heard it kind of represents or or you know, it's, it's Blue, Blue's relationship to the town it seems somewhat similar to like Hollywood's relationship to your your like lower level run of the mill TV writer. Definitely. And, you know, I mean, I've always been interested in like, the, you know, this is like I, many people are interested in this, I guess, but like the kind of secret but not so secret darkness of LA, you know, and the idea that one of the things that really stuck with me is in college, I took this class called the Western and American identity. And the professor I thought made a great point where she was saying that like the particular tragedy of sunset Boulevard as like a literal Boulevard and as the movie is that it's like material proof that the West ends. It's like the last sunset, you know, and like Uh, every, every West, you know, every John Wayne movie or something like it always ends by riding into the sunset. Like it always ends with this idea that, you know, however many, you know, indigenous people you've killed, however many, you know, like marriages you've ruined, however many like horrible things you've done in this town, you could just move on. You could just go to the next place. And, you know, there's always the sunset, you know, and that's the sort of American idea writ large. Like you can always just move on, you know, and it's like if America, at least from the point of view of Europe, if all of America represented the West, then within America, the West was still the like, place where you could you know escape a murder charge or where you could find gold or where you could you know run away from your kids or like do whatever these kind of roguelike things that people are people do is you know and the problem when you get to LA is it's like oh it's over like it's not infinite and this dream that it was infinite you know was clearly a dream and it makes sense then that LA became like the city of dreams like the city of manufacturing dreams you know so you could say like you know Sunset, Sunset Boulevard literally is the place where the west ends and the western begins you know the real place becomes the myth Uh, when the the sunset like lands in the pacific ocean Uh, and that just always struck me as very poignant and that you know california i think has a particular darkness because it's often full of people who came there 
thinking that it would be a place of light. You know, so like LA noir has this like different vibe than say New York noir, which is more a place that people I think expect to be kind of heavy and dark and cold and so on. You know, whereas LA, like there's something you thought you were going to escape that in reality, maybe you ran right into. Well, I mean, we have somehow uh, in Dodge City itself, our drifter runs through the, or, or drives through, he's taken via limo through the Hollywood Hills that, that happened to be right there uh, as well. So it, it, it plays a part. I think that's a very beautiful idea. Speaking of which, um, if we're doing all right on time, I'm good. Um, I, I thought it, it could be great to hear a little um, reading from a section of Dodge City too. I don't know if you, if you have a section in mind, the, the one that I had uh, thought of previously was um, when Blute, when I guess it would be the first time that the Drifter and Blute meet face to face, um, the location scout. Yeah, so just, you know, um, until you're comfortable. Okay, yeah, so I'll, I'll read it. Um, I'll, I'll like skip around a little, but I'll try to go through uh, when he like gets this location scout job and then a little bit about the location that is scouted. Yeah, yeah, that sounds uh, great. Um, yeah, so, so basically like throughout, it's about more or less halfway through the book and the um, drifter the whole time has been you know, he doesn't really want to work for Blue Branson. He wants to make his own movies, but but eventually he's accepted that maybe this is the only way to get started. You know, that you have to work for someone else. So he sees this rare posting for uh, the new Blue Branson film is looking for location scouts to, you know, discover where this film should be shot. So he applies and gets an interview. All right, so he's gone, he's left the hotel where he lives and he's gone out to the edge of town where this... Um, collection of what were originally like an encampment of civil war deserters who purportedly founded the town has been turned into Branson's like uh, filmmaking sort of military bunker. Okay, so I'll start here. The premises are surrounded by a wrought iron fence supporting a sign that reads Branson Entertainments, Grindhouse and Art House in rusted metal letters clearly an homage to Lars von Trier's Zentropa entertainments on the edge of Copenhagen, unless, as ever, the line of influence goes in the other direction. I'm considering rattling the gate to announce my arrival when an assistant rolls up on a golf cart, opening the gate from inside with a mobile device and gesturing for me to climb aboard. You got the call, she asks, in a voice that might be the same as the one that called me. I nod and climb onto the cart beside her as she puts it in drive, taking us straight into the heart of the complex, which contains five large buildings and a number of smaller ones, like sheds, and clusters around the periphery. I can't believe I've lived in Dodge City this long without ever coming out here. Okay, get off, she says, jerking the cart to a halt. I tumble to my feet, dizzy like I've been on a plane, and follow her along a concrete path into the bunker. We pass through a thick plastic curtain and into a cement-smelling cavern where the only lights on are red. I get the sense that unseen plant life is growing all around us. I follow her further in, past tables laid out with guns and cash, into a side room with a door that requires a fingerprint scan to open. Inside sit at least 50 people, applicants like me, I'm assuming, on plastic chairs under more of that harsh red light. At the focus of everyone's attention sits Branson himself, or the assistant director playing Branson, in fatigues, combat boots, and a safari hat. 
He turns and looks me over, calmly. And when he looks away, I have the feeling that he's seen all the way in. I take this as my cue to sit down. So, Branson begins, or continues, as you all know, I have been incommunicado for the past while. I don't care to say where I've been. All that matters is that I'm now ready to get back to work. The next Blute Branson film is about to get underway. The real next film, not that fear of death footage we shot with the babies. That was just a trailer. He leans to the side to reach into his back pocket and removes what looks like a plastic hood, which he unwraps and stretches over his head, sealing it around the neck. Then, stoic, though it doesn't look like he can breathe, he presses a button on his mobile phone and blinks somberly. Gas hisses down from a sprinkler and we all nod out. When I come to him in a glaring white room with six other people, we're laid on cots, tied up inside sleeping bags so tight we can only wriggle. Seven of you, says Branson's voice over an intercom, have been selected as location scouts for my next film. The others have been let go. This is, needless to say, an immense honor. You're one shot at the big time. The jets leave for Kazakhstan in half an hour. Once aboard, each of you will receive a written description and a sketch of the location you are to find. He pauses to swallow whatever he's chewing. I have never in my life dreamed of a location for one of my films, he continues, his voice turning graver and failed to find it somewhere upon the earth. What is in me is also out there. This is my brand, my claim to fame, my greatest asset. I've seen this claim made before in the first most cited interview in Branson on Branson. Its metaphysical hubris impressed me then and impresses me even more now to hear the man himself make it so boldly with no hint that he's kidding. My chronic fear of flying has been well-documented for decades, so it should come as no surprise that I require your assistance in tracking these locations down. His voice keeps getting louder and slower. Suffice it to say, if you find the location you've been tasked with finding, its inclusion in my body of work will serve as a source of pride for you for years to come. It will be your crowning achievement. You will not be credited outright, but you will know in your hearts when you see my film that the credit is yours. As he's saying this, an assistant enters the room with a pair of scissors. And after asking each of us if we consent to execute the job we've been selected for, cuts us free. Scout the area your air dropped into, says the assistant, overlooking no corner of it, relentlessly seeking out the location described in the file you've been given. Your $15 an hour will be paid upon your safe return, bearing photos of the location and its exact coordinates. You will be paid for 20 hours per day. Do not let Mr. Branson suspect that any of you has worked fewer. All right, so I'll jump ahead a little bit. So they go to Kazakhstan, they have kind of a journey. And then after many days, finally the the narrator discovers something. Finally, on what is by my count the third morning, I climb over a small hill and on the other side find exactly what I was afraid I might, the M Tower jutting into the sky. As soon as I lay eyes on it, a deep memory rushes to the surface. The M Tower, as I've called it since I was a child, due to the large stone M of its roof, which I always assumed stood for me or mine, is the structure I've gone to most frequently in my mind. Perhaps this is what the M stands for now that I think of it. When I needed to exit the circumstances around me and enter a place of pure cerebral calm. The running water inside the M Tower is a self-renewing spring of fresh thought, where all my ideas have come from, where the dream of every movie I've ever dreamed of making has been dreamt. I've spent whole days in here, drinking from the faucet on the top floor, looking out over a vast inner landscape absolutely identical to the one I'm standing in now. Am I in my own mind, I wonder? Have I gone nowhere but deeper in? If not, how did Branson find this place inside me? What did he do to me while I was gassed? Nothing feels more important than protecting the M Tower from Branson's influence. 
It's not his to steal, I think, my voice regressing to that of a child in my inner ear. But what's the alternative? Trudging on into more grass until my supplies run out? I imagine answering the phone when it rings and lying, telling Branson's people that there's nothing out here, yelling at them for wasting my time. I reach in the pack and take out the phone, put it to my ear and practice lying, but all that come out are gasps. I've never been a good liar, not even in low stakes circumstances. The thought of convincing an operation as militarized as Branson's of anything but the truth is more than I can fathom. To keep from hyperventilating, I sit down and feel the M-Tower shadow wash over me, cool as the sheets in my childhood bed. It occurs to me that this is how Branson operates. Each location scout he hires has an inner landscape of their own, which he unearths while we're under the gas. Then he claims it as a product of his own imagination and sends us out to find it. I try to follow the logic through. If I'm inside my own mind now, I think, what would it mean to emerge back into objective reality and lead Branson's people here? And after that, how would they film it and convey its essence to a mass audience inside the temple? Are all the settings in all the Branson films I've ever seen stolen from the minds of others? Is this why they resonate so strongly in the collective dream life of Dodge City? Perhaps his crew will make a scale replica and bring it back to Branson Entertainments. The thought of the actual M Tower here and real before me being turned into a replica of itself and manhandled on a film set is too grotesque to dwell on. I spit to clear the thought watching my dehydrated saliva trickle off the side of my shoe and into the step. Getting back to my feet, I creep around the bottom of the M Tower, looking up at its majestic stone flanks, listening to the spring of pure thought flow through its piping, making my mouth water. It's clear that the only means of discovering what comes next is to seek it in there. Bowing my head in reverence, I go in. That's excellent. Thank you. So, so part of what he discovers is Bluth's method of exploitation, I guess. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then I also want to know more about the M Tower. It's pretty mysterious. I mean, me or my... Right, it, maybe uh, mysterious. Yeah, it could be mysterious. <laughs> I know there's the, the monoliths, another M word, come later on, mm -hmm. and I don't know to what extent those are related, but it, it seems to, what, maybe be his sanctuary of his uh, childhood memory or his soul or something? Yeah, it's his, it's, right, it's a sanctuary or it's almost like his own model of himself. You know, it's like if he, well, it's sort of like what we were talking before of picturing all of these towns in a mental landscape. It's like for him, this tower would be the thing in his own mental landscape that is, you know, that gives it orientation, that keeps it from being a desert. Mm -hmm. or, or an open step, you know, that, that somehow he believes that in this tower are the ideas that are genuinely his, which itself might be a fabricated idea, right? I mean, he, mm -hmm. whether Branson is really doing this or this is like another story the drifter is telling himself to explain why, you know, Branson is famous and he's not is, is open for interpretation. But it's always possible that, that Branson yeah, is exploiting people in this way. Yeah. Well, it's good to leave it open to interpretation and I won't prod too deeply because uh, it's for us, it's for the reader to decide. Something about, about, you know, and this could be me projecting our current political, and I try to keep our current life out of the podcast and everything because downfall and everything, it's a little bit, it's a little <laughs> bit upsetting, but it seems to me that I got a slight tinge of fa like fascism running throughout, right? Like, 
I mean, because it does seem like he's this figure who subsumes the identity of everyone in in Dodge City, and oh, certainly be, be able to oh, yeah. do just that. I mean, watch Triumph of the Will or something. I mean, uh, no, no question. Yeah, Stalin was obsessed with film. I mean, it, it's really true that that dictators invariably love movies. I mean, it, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But, but did you did you? I guess was this a nod to fascism, or is it just? A coincidence, you know. That... Uh, oh no, cer- certainly not. Um, yeah, yeah and, and I think the influence goes both ways. That you know, dictators love film because it's a kind of you know, or at least can be used, yeah, as a kind of romantic brainwashing tool of like this is you know the grandeur of whatever the nation or the army or whatever they want to present, um, and vice versa, right? That filmmakers are a kind of dictator, you know, and that that probably you have to have a somewhat tyrannical personality to be a director. Even the term a director sounds like a dictator. I mean, there's not, those are almost the same word. It, you know, and, and to be like, I'm gonna walk onto this set and take all of these people who have their own thoughts and their own dreams and everything and like use them as puppets to, to like enact my dream. I mean, that is what a dictator is. Right. You know, and, and film is maybe a more benign, or certainly a more benign version of it. But I think the dynamics are similar. And, and I think also the way that it, that it, you know, is like subversively appealing to people to be dominated. You know, I mean, certainly the narrator has this quality of like fearing and sort of hating Branson, but at the same time being kind of swayed by him or being, you know, that there's a kind of like, you know, sort of sadomasochistic relationship where he like wants Branson to stop him from trying to make a film. You know, Mm -hmm. he wants, you know, the way that, I don't don't know, some biblical character like wants God to punish him or something. You know, it's like that, that idea is, is, you know, as old, as old as time. Mm-hmm. And I think film, you know, always has, I mean, now, now, I mean, this is another thing that I was concerned about in the book is like this sort of relation between like cinema and streaming, you know, that the book talks a lot about, you know, this sort of endless TV show versus the idea of like going to the temple to see a movie, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, but that idea, like the theatrical experience, which people like Tarantino or you know, P.T. Anderson or something are always like saying how important it is and that, you know, their films have to be seen in a certain way and so on, right? Uh, You know, has, whether it relates to fascism or whether it relates to just religion, has this idea of requiring submission. You know, it's like you have to show up at the theater at a certain time and, you know, ideally the screen is meant to be like so big and so loud that it just dwarfs you. You know, you can't, even like think your own thoughts you know and i think that there's something pleasurable about that of like being uh like told what to do Mm -hmm. you know like where i mean i think freedom is an ambiguous concept that people are often seeking ways to limit their own freedom Mm -hmm. but much as we say we we want more freedom you know so so there's something about the idea of like i'm shackled to this movie and you know someone like alfred hitchcock's a good example like a famously tyrannical and maybe even like perversely so director Mm -hmm. but it's like you know for two hours nothing but what what Hitchcock was, you know, turned on by is, is going to like exist in my world. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so that, yeah, th- those vectors are super similar. And Dodge City 3 will involve that even more explicitly because it's sort of about, you know, this effort to like re-found Dodge City, which which goes in some very dark places. Yeah. So, I mean, there's certainly fascist elements <laughs> in Dodge City for, for sure. Yeah. Uh... Blute and Bowden, maybe. I don't know. You could play with that. Right. But but well, uh, well, the real the real the character who will emerge 
you know, just, just to give like a little plug for, for volume three, the character who emerges as like the real dictator is Paul Broth, the original founder who keeps uh. hanging himself from this tree. And, and he's like, you know, I'm going to finally like overcome the half founding that I achieved before and like make mm -hmm. an eternal empire of, of Dodge City. So, so Paul Broth becomes the sort of Hitler of Dodge City. Very much looking forward to that. And I mean, I also wanted to bring up too Feline. So a couple of great directors make, make an appearance here. Cronenberg Lynch, later in the, in the novel, we get Fellini uh, with Amarcord. Am I saying that correctly, Amarcord? Yeah, yeah, which is also a bad fascist. <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's, that's sort of, you had volume three in mind at, you know, while you're writing volume two, I think, right? Or, or is it just sort of? Oh, 100%, definitely. Yeah. And when, or, or, or almost, almost vice versa, that like I thought of volume three out of volume two, you know. When, when did you write volume two? A long, time, a long time ago. I remember writing the final, the first draft of the final scene when the 2016 like RNC speeches were on. And I remember that on in the background and I was just like, holy shit. Like it was, it was like Tiffany Trump or something being like, you know, my dad's <laughs> like the great, I was like, this, uh, you know, it's like, and I remember this feeling of just like, what, like, where, what world are we living in? You know? Yeah, I mean. So it's been a long time. Yeah, before the first one even came out, because the first one came out in 2017. Yeah, I mean, it, which is, to me, I mean, it's wild. It feels very prophetic. I mean, it's in a lot of ways, when you're reading Dodge City 2, you're awash in media and you're distracted. And it's not, not like, oh, the media in the, in the way that we talk about the news or something. I mean, like, visual stimulus and film. And it's just like, it's, it's an overwhelming and with subtle undertones of fascism. It seems mm -hmm. like... Uh, it was all there. I mean, I've revised it in the years since then, but but all yeah. those vectors, you know, I mean, they all grew out of something. You know, I think it's like there was such a shock in 2016 because it was like something became undeniable mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. previously we were in denial about. In America, yeah. And I mean, yeah, I, think, America, I think, yeah. And I think, you know, whatever you want to say about Bannon, I mean, he, he, had, a, he had a big portion of his career in film too. And it's, yep. it's, so um, it's just an interesting, it's, it's incredibly interesting for a lot of reasons. Uh, I, absolutely, I absolutely loved it. And I'm looking forward to volume three. And, and so something, you know, that I hope to do with the podcast too is, you know, about writing itself. And it's kind of a broad question, so feel free to take your time. But just thing you learned as a writer writing Dodge City one or two or, you know, in your career thus far, some sort of wisdom that you could impart on writers uh i've gotten a lot personally from you taking your classes and talking to you over beers and and reading your books but you know i mean any challenges you faced that you overcame you know writing god city too or or some insights you've gleaned recently about the act of writing fiction the art of writing fiction for sure i mean one thing that came to mind that you said a moment ago you know that it's like so awash in different kinds of media i think in a way that might be the reason why the novel never dies. You know, we keep, like throughout the life of the novel, people always declared it dead and it never seems to be dead or maybe it's undead, but it's that it is actually a way to incorporate all kinds of other technologies in a way that I don't think other technologies are. You know what I mean? Like it's very hard to have films about books right. in a way that books about films, you know, are their own thing. And, and that there's something, you know, a piece of advice I would give people in that regard is like, don't underestimate how much you can incorporate into fiction. You know, don't start getting the idea that fiction is 
you know, a limited form. And in a way, it might actually be the most capacious form or the form that's closest to just like the full breadth of thought more than, you know, any visual art per se. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's, you know, and, and maybe I'm talking to myself in that regard that it's in terms of a challenge, it's partly like keeping my own faith that, uh, yeah, that it's worth doing and that there's something like very contemporary that you can do with it. You know, that it's not worth doing only out of, you know, nostalgia or like some historical sense of, well, you know, books have a long history, you know, that it's important as a way of like explicitly grappling with the moment that we're all in right now in whatever way you take that. But, but, you know, that's something that I think is important. Um, in terms of other challenges, I mean, you know, I mean, finding time, finding, you know, time, but I think when people say time, in terms of time to write, like what they mean more is like time and a kind of like clear mental space. And that's the hard thing. You know, time is hard enough, but it's like even harder to be like, how do I, within that time, also find a way to show up and like be, you know, not too scrambled or too kind of going in too many directions to like actually channel whatever's in my head, like onto the page. So for me, that that's like an ongoing struggle, you know, and just how do you have that like, good attention. And I think, you know, the answer is so simple, but it's also so hard is that I always just regain it through reading, you know, and that uh, I think the value of reading is not just, you know, learning what else is out there, participating in a literary culture, all, all of which is good, but it's also, you know, we're studying craft or any of those things. It's also like training a certain kind of attention to be like, I have this like, book attention that's just a way of being that I can then try to turn on when I'm writing. So in a way, if you can think about writing almost analogous to how you think about reading, I think that's a good headspace to be in. Yeah. I think I've heard all the, I think I've heard a lot of counter arguments for the, the, the death of the novel. And I have, I don't know, I think it might be one of the most compelling. I, I don't know if I've heard Oh God, I, I believe yeah, it. It's convinced I, me at least. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, yeah, it's an extremely good point. I mean, um, good. I have some optimism going into this, but. Uh, you have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been tough, tough time, you know, to keep that mental space clear for everyone probably. But uh, if you can do it now, you should be able to, to do it whenever. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get more cloudy than this. So. Yeah. Well, that's what's, that's what's like so maddening about this time is that I think a lot of people find themselves with more time than they've ever had before, but less focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's particularly frustrating because if you don't, you know, if you're running around everywhere and traveling and stuff, you don't, you know, you can tell yourself that, oh, if I only had time, then, then everything else would sort itself out. And you realize, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Great. Well, this was uh, fantastic to talk to you and, and, um, I'm just really looking forward to to everything else that, that's coming out here in the near near future, and hope to have you on again very soon to talk about your next success. And thanks a lot, I appreciate it. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's good to hear. Yeah, oh, and the next next stuff will keep coming. <laughs>